The Bob Murphy Show, episode 282. Get ready for another episode of The Bob Murphy Show, the podcast promoting free markets, free minds, and grateful souls. It's your source for commentary and interviews conducted by a Christian and economist. Now here's your host, Bob Murphy. Hey everybody, welcome back to The Bob Murphy Show. In this episode, I'm going to start what may be a long-running series in the podcast where I'm going to parse various debates and offer my commentary. The motivation for this was I was had an Airbnb and they had a nice TV set up and I wanted to go look at some YouTubes and I thought, you know, I've uh, there's like a lot of debates on theological matters that I've always been meaning to watch and I just never got around to doing it. And then also, though, I was thinking, oh, but you know what? I really ought to make some more episodes for the podcast because I've been promising the people I would do that. And then I had an epiphany. I could kill two birds with one stone. What if I could find debates on YouTube of people saying I either had too many episodes or too few episodes? No. Obviously, the solution was I would watch these debates that I had been intending to watch anyway and then take notes for me to then come and comment on the debates for you folks. And I'll play snippets too. So part of the idea here is in case you also are someone who, yeah, in a perfect world, I would go read Crime and Punishment and paint the fence and listen to uh, a bunch of these debates. So I'm going to try to at least allow you to do one of those things right now. There's clearly no way I'm going to be able to get you to paint your fence using this podcast. Okay, so the particular debate we're going to start today or this episode is titled, Does God Exist? And this was a debate between William Lane Craig and Christopher Hitchens. It occurred on April 4th, 2009 and was hosted at Biola University. And just to give you an idea of like, why is this a big deal? Because I had heard lots of people referring to this. As you can imagine, a lot of Christians confidently tell people that, oh yeah, William Lane Craig destroyed Christopher Hitchens in their debate. And then on the other hand, I know a lot of atheists believe that Christopher Hitchens wiped the floor with William Lane Craig and that William Lane Craig is a blowhard. Okay, so this particular debate, though, on YouTube has 6.9 million views as of my current checking. So you can see this was somewhat of a big deal. And that's why I picked this one to start with. Big picture, I'm just going to let the cat out of the bag. I was actually underwhelmed by this debate that I would have been, I don't know if you call him the host or the moderator. I don't know if it was the actual moderator or just like the person from Biola who got up and welcomed the crowd or whatever. I don't remember off the top of my head because I actually watched this a while ago and took the notes. And it's just now that I'm getting around to recording my episode pertaining to it. But I remember the person from Biola talking to the students says something like, hey, we're sorry, you guys have been sitting around for two hours already, but don't worry, we're just about to get started. Something like that. And I remember thinking as I was watching this debate that, wow, I would have been upset if I, whether I was a staunch Christian apologist and wanted to come see William Lake Craig 
in action or whether I was a raging atheist and wanted to see the world famous Christopher Hitchens show up and blow up this idiot who thinks some guy can walk on water. Either way, if I had spent two hours sitting in this auditorium to get my seat, then in my case, I would have been crossing my legs, even though I had cut off liquids three hours earlier at this point. And then this was the actual debate. I just, I would have been like, are you kidding me? It, it would have reminded me of when I got my friends together and we all chipped in and got the pay-per-view to watch Mike Tyson and he bit the guy's ear and ended the fight before we even finished the pizzas. So anyway, I don't want to say that. Have you guys say, oh, well, let's forget this. I'll skip this episode and we'll come back when you guys talk about capital theory or something interesting. I still think it's worthwhile going through I'm just saying with as much hype as I had heard about this and that these two guys are heavyweights and the Stefan Kinsella use of the term, I was underwhelmed, okay? Or if you prefer, when I go to debate somebody at this point, an atheist <laughs> on this stuff, I think our debate's gonna, at least I'm gonna do, I hope a better job than William Lane Craig. And I really hope the, let me put it this way, right now, I would do a better job arguing the atheist position than Christopher Hitchens did. And I think part of it was you get this idea that like <laughs> that they just get up there and wing it because they're just like, I can't even believe we're having this conversation. You, there's people out here who actually believe this crap. Like that's kind of the, the <laughs> attitude. And so I was like, no, I don't really have to be careful and rigorous when I make fun of Christians because what they believe is so silly. And many of you may be nodding your head and say, yes, yes, I like what you've done here. But any event... If you're going to go to the trouble of actually having a formal debate, then you should at least show up just like if I were going to debate somebody from MMT, I wouldn't just get up there and be like, are you kidding me? You're going to run the printing press and it'll make us wealthy? <laughs> okay. So enough of my smugness. Let's go ahead and jump into this. Let me, in case you don't know who William Lane Craig is, because actually I had heard his name banned about it a lot, but I actually didn't know who he was for a long time. Let me just read a little bit from his Wikipedia article. William Lane Craig, born August 23rd, 1949, is an American analytic philosopher, Christian apologist, author, and Wesleyan theologian who upholds the views of Molinism and Neo-Apollinarianism. He is currently a professor of philosophy at Houston Baptist University and a research professor of philosophy at Biola University's Talbot School of Theology. Craig has updated and defended the Kalam cosmological argument for the existence of God, He's also published work where he argues in favor of the historical plausibility of the resurrection of Jesus. His study of divine aseity, it's A-S-E-I-T-Y, and I'm sure many of the Christian apologists in the audience are like, how do you not know how to pronounce that? And Platonism culminated with his book, God Over All. Okay, and so he's, you, as, if you haven't heard him before, when you hear him go, when I start playing these clips, you'll see why he's such a big deal in these circles, because he's got a very authoritative stage presence. He's kind of argues like a lawyer. So he's very, his debating style is very good. Okay. And just to sort of soften some of my earlier remarks, I like a lot of what William Lane Craig said. It's just, some of his points I thought were weak. And maybe this has to do with my own background. So real quick, this isn't about me. This is about the ideas. But in case you don't know, just to know where I'm coming from, I was raised Catholic, but by the time I got to undergrad, I called myself a devout atheist. I thought that was clever. And I actually thought one of the things I had to do with my life was write 
the definitive refutation of Christianity. Because I had read like H.L. Mencken's The Treatise on the Gods. I think George Smith was a guy's name, had a book on, I think it was just called Atheism. And there was, oh, I'm blanking now. There was another one too that now that is, oh, Thomas Paine's The Age of Reason. Thomas Paine wasn't an atheist, by the way, in case people, he was a deist. But the Age of Reason went through and attacked a lot of the Christian Bible, like pointing out what he thought were inner contradictions or just abject absurdities and how could any rational man believe this stuff, that kind of thing. So I thought, okay, yeah, you guys are on the right track, but I thought, no, 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 there's a much better refutation waiting to be written. And then before I could get around to writing it in grad school, I won't tell the whole story here, but I had a crisis and eventually I realized, oh, wait, there is a God after all. And then I tried dabbling in various other religions and came back and said, no, I think that this Jesus guy is kind of the center of everything. And so that's the path by which I am now calling myself a born again Christian. So I think when I look back at my life, part of what was going on is God allowed me to wallow in my atheism so I would really understand people who are there. And those of you who know me, I was a very, quote, scientific and rational atheist, right? I could sit there and argue with you and tell you why. And that's why I thought I was qualified and equipped to go write the definitive refutation of Christianity. Okay, so believe me when I say I understand where Hitchens is going to be coming from. I would have probably thought he was awesome. My undergrad self would have. And so then on the flip side, though, William Lane Craig, some of the th arguments he's going to make, I just know as soon as he starts making, I'm like, oh, come on, man. Somebody who doesn't already believe in Jesus is not going to be find that compelling whatsoever. Are you kidding me? So anyway, that's kind of where I'm coming from. So I'm sure he uh, is sincere and earnest in, in the points he's going to make. And, but in any event, if given what the ostensible function of this thing was to have a debate trying to appeal to people who are on the fence already or just to reinsure the people who already believe some of his arguments, I thought, fell short. Okay, so with all of that prelude, why don't we go ahead and get into it. So this first clip I want to play, I really applaud William Lane Craig in the posture he's going to take here where he isn't, so again, he's at Biola, so it's a home crowd home court and manage kind of thing. But I like what he says at the beginning here. And that's why I don't feel I'm being a jerk for saying what I did just a minute ago about how some of his arguments, I was kind of like rolled my eyes as a strong, I wasn't so much doing that, but just kind of like, like oh, no, that's not going to work for the purposes of what you're trying to do here. So here, let's go ahead and play this first excerpt just so he lays down like what the growl worlds are and what he's going to be trying to do in this debate. Good evening. I am very excited to be participating in this debate tonight. Jan and I used to sit in those very bleachers right over there watching our son John run up and down this court as a forward on the Biola Eagles. And so I feel like I'm playing on the home court tonight. And I want to commend Mr. Hitchens for his willingness to come into this den of lambs and to defend his views tonight. <laughs> on the other hand, if I know Biola students, I suspect that a good many of you, when you came in tonight, said to yourself, 
I'm going to check my own views at the door, and I'm going to assess the arguments as objectively as possible. I welcome that challenge. You see, the question of God's existence is of interest not only to religion, but also to philosophy. Now, Mr. Hitchens has made it clear that he despises and disdains religion, but presumably he is not so contemptuous of philosophy. Therefore, as a professional philosopher, I'm going to approach tonight's question philosophically from the standpoint of reason and argument. I'm convinced that there are better arguments for theism than for atheism. Okay, so again, I applaud his intellectual honesty and I like it when Christians try to do that, right? So yes, and William Lane Craig, near the end of this debate, he is going to, well, it might even just be at his opening remarks. I'm, I'm getting a little bit mixed up here, but so we'll hear him as we go through this. At some point in this episode, I believe you will encounter it. He's got to say, don't just get all hung up in the rational argumentation or whatever, but I do think it's important for Christian apologists. By the way, if you don't, an apologist is someone who is like making the case, justifying, just saying, well, you know, why should someone believe in Christianity? That's what we mean by apologist. So it sort of has, it's interesting. It kind of has a different connotation. Like normally, if you're an apologist for something that has a negative connotation, except in theological matters, I guess, unless you're an atheist, in which case you're going to say, yeah, you're an apologist for Christianity, just like these guys are apologists for Stalin or whatever. So in any event, people who are apologists for Jesus <laughs> don't recoil from the term, put it that way, in case you haven't heard it used in that context. So I like it when Christian apologists try to be clear and separate. Like, like for me, there were personal things that happened. Like if someone says, Bob, how could it possibly be that you used to be an atheist? And we know you're right. I mean, we, you know, we know you understand physics and stuff and the basics of the scientific method. And you can see the way you argue about economics and you understand how evidence works and you understand what an invalid argument is. And, you know, okay. And then yet you think God was mad at us and then he sent his son and we butchered his son. And then God said, okay, that's cool. And if you don't love me though, you're going to roast forever. And by the way, the definition of love, like, are you kidding me about this is nutty. How could you posit? And so it's true. In my case, it was personal things that happened to me. And I would say God directly communicated with me. And had those personal things not happened, I would not have flipped. Now, listen to me carefully. I am not saying belief in God is irrational or that, oh, yeah, you just got to have faith. That's not what I'm saying. Once I did flip, and realize through direct experience, like, whoo, there is a God. Then in that frame of mind, I realized how inadequate and collection of non sequiturs, I actually don't know if that's a plural, but let's make it a plural. My earlier atheistic framework had been, even though I thought it was airtight at the time. Okay. So again, it's not that it was like, oh, before I thought two plus two was four, but now since I know there's a God, I'm just going to pretend that math doesn't exist. That's not what, at all what I'm saying. I'm just saying I thought I had an airtight worldview before, and then when God showed up, I realized I was mistaken. And then in that new mindset, I looked back at my earlier reasoning and saw, oh, wait a minute, no. There were flaws in it. I just didn't see them at the time. Okay, and I'm just using my reason to see that now, okay? 
So I can make an argument for God and I can do things like say, you know, oh, how could it possibly be that he allows kids to die from cancer? And I can try to make arguments about that, relying just on reason and logic and stuff like that. But I'm admitting those types of arguments would have bounced off me back when I was an atheist, right? Just to be honest with you. Okay, so, and I think that I believe like Thomas Aquinas was big on saying, let's look at the evidence for God or matters of Christian doctrine or what have you that we can observe just from the natural world using our senses and our reason, but then also say, oh, but then some things we just know because of divine revelation. So he wasn't excluding that, but he was saying, let's see how far we can get just relying on the natural world and that kind of stuff. Okay, so I don't think it's worth playing the clips, but William Lane Craig then goes on to say that, you know, his case, does God exist, is going to consist of two main planks. First of all, he's going to say there's no good argument for atheism. And then he's going to switch and give five arguments for theism. And hence, he's going to conclude that, okay, so therefore I've made the case that God exists. So I'm not going to get all hung up in, and I think a lot of the debate was squandered on that issue. And I was sympathetic to Hitchens on this point about, is there an argument for atheism besides merely just saying, I find the arguments for theism to be lacking. Okay. So yeah, I'm adapting a little bit what Hitchens said, but it's kind of like, if we have a debate about does Zeus exist, it's not really my job to, like, and so let's say I'm arguing that no, Zeus does not exist. I think it's enough for me to knock down all the arguments for Zeus and just say, so see, the burden of proof is on people to prove that Zeus exists. I haven't seen any good argument. I don't have to then on top of that, give an argument for why Zeus doesn't exist. Like that, it's kind of like, that's what I just did by knocking down the arguments for his existence, if you get what I'm saying. All right, so that's why I'm not going to get all hung up and on that, let's just dive right into what William Lane Craig claimed were his five reasons, five grounds of argument for the existence of God. But mathematicians recognize that the existence of an actually infinite number of things leads to self-contradictions. For example, what is infinity minus infinity? Well, mathematically, you get self-contradictory answers. This shows that infinity is just an idea in your mind, not something that exists in reality. David Hilbert, perhaps the greatest mathematician of the 20th century, wrote, the infinite is nowhere to be found in reality. It neither exists in nature nor provides a legitimate basis for rational thought. The role that remains for the infinite to play is solely that of an idea. But that entails that since past events are not just ideas, but are real, the number of past events must be finite. Therefore, the series of past events can't go back forever. Rather, the universe must have begun to exist. This conclusion has been confirmed by remarkable discoveries in astronomy and astrophysics. In one of the most startling developments of modern science, we now have pretty strong evidence that the universe is not eternal in the past, but had an absolute beginning about 13 billion years ago in a cataclysmic event known as the Big Bang. 
What makes the Big Bang so startling is that it represents the origin of the universe from literally nothing. For all matter and energy, even physical space and time themselves, came into being at the Big Bang. As the physicist P.C.W. Davies explains, the coming into being of the universe, as discussed in modern science, is not just a matter of imposing some sort of organization upon a previous incoherent state, but literally the coming into being of all physical things from nothing. Now, this puts the atheist in a very awkward position. As Anthony Kenney of Oxford University urges, a proponent of the Big Bang Theory, at least if he is an atheist, must believe that the universe came from nothing and by nothing. But surely that doesn't make sense. Out of nothing, nothing comes. So why does the universe exist instead of just nothing? Where did it come from? There must have been a cause which brought the universe into being. Okay, so I hadn't actually thought that much until I got into Christian apologetics and I think it was Lee Strobel's book, The Case for a Creator. It was the first time I had encountered the idea of the Big Bang being cited in favor of theism as a feather in the cap of the theists. And I think the reason that was new to me was that I had historically thought the Big Bang was an embarrassment to Christians and they kind of made fun of it. Like that, oh yeah, the Big Bang is what those atheist scientists believe that all of a sudden the universe, there's nothing and then all of a sudden it just, it comes into existence for no reason, just because so many, such and such billion years ago, and particularly if you're a young earth creationist, you think everything was created according as the book of Genesis documents, whatever, six, 7,000 years ago, then I thought you would be making fun of the Big Bang. So again, just philosophically, what's going on here is they're just saying, like, like logically speaking, things make sense if the universe is finite and had a beginning. But then given that that happened, that kind of stands to reason that there was a creator who started the thing. All right. I'm not going to right now get into, you have to be careful of how you phrase it. So strictly speaking, the argument is not everything that exists must have had a creator because then that raises the obvious question, well, does God exist? Yes. So then who created God? Okay. And then the standard creator, oh, no, see, God is the thing that isn't created. And so, for example, I think Thomas Aquinas's arguments, like call it the first mover, that kind of thing, it was a lot more sophisticated than that, right? And Tom Woods, I'll see if I can dig it up. He had a good episode on his show a long time ago where he walks through what Aquinas's actual first mover argument was. And it's not just to say anything that exists must have had a creator. It's, it's not that. Because if it were that, then yeah, you could blow that up in two seconds. And that's not what Aquinas's argument was. All right, so I'm not going to get into that now, partly just because I don't think I'd be able to reproduce it right now off the top of my head. But I am just warning you about that. So let's, what I think is more interesting and juicier is the so-called fine-tuning argument. So let's jump into that now. Two, the teleological argument. 
In recent decades, scientists have been stunned by the discovery that the initial conditions of the Big Bang were fine-tuned for the existence of intelligent life with a precision and delicacy that literally defy human comprehension. This fine-tuning is of two sorts. First, when the laws of nature are expressed as mathematical equations, you find appearing in them certain constants, like the gravitational constant. These constants are not determined by the laws of nature. The laws of nature are consistent with a wide range of values for these constants. Second, in addition to these constants, there are certain arbitrary quantities put in as initial conditions on which the laws of nature operate. For example, the amount of entropy or the balance between matter and antimatter in the universe. Now, all of these constants and quantities fall into an extraordinarily narrow range of life-permitting values. Were these constants or quantities to be altered by less than a hair's breadth, the balance would be destroyed and life would not exist. To give just one example, the atomic weak force, if it were altered by as little as one part out of 10 to the 100th power, would not have permitted a life-permitting universe. Okay, so if you've never heard this before and you think it sounds goofy, I think you need to check your premises. Okay, so I'm going to pull up just the Wikipedia article on this just to give you an idea. Okay. So the Wikipedia entry is on fine-tuned universe. So it says, the characterization of the universe as finely tuned suggests that the occurrence of life in the universe is very sensitive to the values of certain fundamental physical constants and that the observed values are, for some reason, improbable. If the values of any of certain free parameters in contemporary physical theories had differed only slightly from those observed, the evolution of the universe would have proceeded very differently and life as understood may not have been possible. Okay, and so the idea is the laws of physics, as we understand them today, do not pin down, there are certain things like called constants of nature, stuff like, um, or fundamentals. So here, here's a quote from Stephen Hawking. The laws of science as we know them at present contain many fundamental numbers like the size of the electric charge of the electron and the ratio of the masses of the proton and the electron. The remarkable fact is that the values of these numbers seem to have been very finely adjusted to make possible the development of life. Okay, and then, uh, this isn't Hawking, this is the Wikipedia article. If, for example, the strong nuclear force were 2% stronger than it is, while the other constants were left unchanged, diprotons would be stable. According to Davies, hydrogen would fuse into them instead of deuterium and helium. This would drastically alter the physics of stars and presumably preclude the existence of life similar to what we observe on Earth. The diprotons existence would short-circuit the slow fusion of hydrogen into deuterium. Hydrogen would fuse so easily that it is likely that all the universe's hydrogen would be consumed in the first few minutes after the Big Bang. This diproton argument is disputed by other physicists who calculate that as long as the increase in strength is less than 50%, da 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 da, da. Okay. So there is... I probably shouldn't just sit here and try to go through all these. And for each of these things, yes, some physicists can come along and say, well, maybe this particular thing, da 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 But the idea is that there are the things needed for atoms to work the way they work and for cells to form and so on for life as we know it to be possible various physical constants all have to be within a certain 
parameter range. And so that's the sense in which it looks like the universe is finely tuned. So again, you know, it's not stuff like to say, oh, the Newton's laws of gravity and that when you double the distance, the gravitational force drops to one fourth. It's not like that kind of stuff. We're not saying, what if it was one third? Again, it's stuff like saying the charge on an electron. Like that's just some number and that we kind of, as we study it more, we refine it down to, you know, more and more digits to get a more and more precise estimate, but it just some number, it is what it is. And then, you know, the laws of physics are built up around that particular value, okay? Or the different weights of different atomic elements and things like that. Okay, so that's what this means. And again, the more that scientists looked at this, they were just coming up with more and more examples where it's like, huh, this seems kind of lucky, like kind of a coin. Like in other words, there's nothing in the laws of physics pinning down why the speed of light had to be that number. It could have been something else. And yet, go through these various things. If it had been a little bit different, then this process wouldn't work. And then, gee, how would how would these elements remain stable? You know, that kind of stuff. Okay, so that's what the fine-tuning argument is. And the number one response to that that I've heard has been the so-called multiverse explanation, which is tied to what's called the anthropic principle. Okay, so the idea being that, hey, if there's an infinite number of universes, like if every possible universe exists somewhere in the multiverse, then in some of them, the parameters will be tuned such that life is possible, and then it will evolve and grow up and become intelligent. And then the creatures in that particular universe, out of all the infinitely possible ones in the whole multiverse, will then be looking around their own little local universe with the finely tuned parameters and say, wow, this is really amazing. What are the odds of that happening? And then the answer, of course, is just, well, no, it's you're only able to look around and wonder why did we get so lucky because life is possible. In, a, in the 99.99% of universes where the parameters are not tuned such that life is possible, they're just dead universes. And so there's nobody in there looking around saying, oh yeah, this is more reasonable because they can't live. And so there's your explanation, right? There's no God necessary, right? So that's the idea of how the multiverse view easily disposes of the theist's attempt to look at the so-called finely tuned parameters of the universe to say, wow, there must be an intelligent creator behind all this. All right, so let's hear William Lane Craig talk about that. In order to rescue the alternative of chance, its proponents have therefore been forced to resort to a radical metaphysical hypothesis, namely, that there exists an infinite number of randomly ordered, undetectable universes composing a sort of world ensemble or multiverse of which our universe is but a part. Somewhere in this infinite world ensemble, finely tuned universes will appear by chance alone, and we happen to be one such world. Now, wholly apart from the fact that there's no independent evidence that such a world ensemble even exists, the hypothesis faces a devastating objection. Namely, 
If our universe is just a random member of an infinite world ensemble, then it is overwhelmingly more probable that we should be observing a much different universe than what we in fact observe. Roger Penrose has calculated that it is inconceivably more probable that our solar system should suddenly form through a random collision of particles than that a finely tuned universe should exist. Penrose calls it utter chicken feed by comparison. So, if our universe were just a random member of a world ensemble, it is inconceivably more probable that we should be observing an orderly region no larger than our solar system. Observable universes like those are simply much more plenteous in the world ensemble than finely tuned worlds like ours, and therefore ought to be observed by us. Since we do not have such observations, that fact strongly disconfirms the multiverse hypothesis. Okay, so let me just mention, given what William Lane Craig said in the debate right there, it's confusing. Like, it's not a good argument just to say that the probability that all of our parameters are within the acceptable regions necessary to support life, that that's overwhelmingly unlikely and that quote he had from Penrose, from there, it still doesn't follow that, you know, what are you talking about, William Lake Craig, when you say that we should be, you know, that we should just observe orderliness in our solar system like that? Because it's the idea is that these are the parameters that are true for the laws of physics in our entire universe. So if the parameters were such that it would support life in the solar system, then it would also, you know, that orderliness and whatnot would permeate throughout the entire universe as we see it. Okay, so there, there's no reason for that. So when I first heard that, I thought William Lane Craig was just getting mixed up and didn't understand something. I posted it on Twitter and somebody gave me some some feedback and was like, no, no, I think what he's talking about is blah, blah, blah. So it's not worth getting into right now, but there is, I went and looked at these other videos, so there is a line of argument saying that I believe the idea was that in all of the different multiverses, that you would, because again, like everything is up for grabs here. Why should our universe be as big as this one is? Couldn't there be some other universe where it's just the size of the solar system or whatever? So there was an argument to say that given how the multiverse ostensibly would work in all the different possible types of universes that would be generated, that the argument was that you would expect, given that there was intelligent life that would you would expect it to happen more like in just local areas of local orderliness and so the idea being that okay so that even if you conditioned on in terms of bayesian probabilities given that the creatures are intelligent the inhabitants in this thing and then they can look around what's the probability that they're going to be just like in a solar system that supports life or they're going to be in a solar system that supports life embedded in a humongous galaxy that's got 100 billion other solar systems that may or may not have life also, that is then part of hundreds of billions of other galaxies too. And apparently in some of these models, it pops out that that's ridiculously unlikely that you would see that, even conditioned on the fact that you're only looking at universes whose parameters are tuned to support life. Okay, so I think William Lake Craig had read that stuff or watched the videos or whatever 
And that's what he was trying to get at there. But he didn't do a good job of collapsing that for the audience. So my take on that is, obviously, I'm not an expert in these models of the multiverse and stuff. But to me, that per se is not a crushing counter argument. Because, you know, how do we know what's big in the universe? Like, yeah, this universe seems big to me. But maybe this is, you know, in principle... There could be universes with quadrillion, 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 quadrillion galaxies. And so maybe this is kind of a tiny little universe compared to the scope of all possible. And in one sense, ours is of measure zero. If, if we're going to allow for universes that have uncountably many stars or something, right? So I don't, you know, I mean, I don't even know mathematically how you model that. But anyway, I'm just saying to me, we're getting so far afield if we're talking about multiverses and the set of all possible universes that I'm not sure that particular argument is very compelling. I certainly would not expect an atheist to be moved by that because there's so many uncertainties in how we model this thing. So to me, a better argument against the multiverse is to like use Occam's razor and just say, or you know, the principle, well, I guess it's kind of like Occam's razor, but to say in general, empiricists would make fun of a Christian or, you know, so, oh, you're relying on your invisible sky daddy because you can't handle emotional loss or something. You want there to be someone there who loves you, but we can never observe him and, duh, 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 and you know, okay, well, yeah, I mean, well, maybe there's a, a demon in the corner that's always hiding my car keys, but in principle, I can never detect him through any scientific means. And so, you know, that's just the nature of his existence. And so my views are unfalsifiable and to most atheists would say that's goofy. And so I want to say, okay, it's kind of weird if the way you're going to rescue your position is to say, I know maybe there's an infinite number of universes out there that in principle we can't detect. I know in some versions like string theory, wherever you can, but like just in terms of conceptually, if we're talking about our universe is everything that's observable to us, and then what is the multiverse? Oh, it's the set of other universes that don't directly interact with ours. Like, you know, it almost sounds like you're creating an unfalsifiable position that has the most possible content imaginable, an explanatory power imaginable or something. So it's like the most productive, unfalsifiable hypothesis conceivable is the multiverse from one angle. And in other contexts, empiricists don't like that kind of thing. So it seems like it's doing a lot of work for you guys on this one. Folks, let's take a break from the action to explain what you can do to help make a difference. If you go to bobmurphyshow.com slash contribute, you'll see some interesting offers there and you know what to do. Let's get back to the show. Okay, next he turns to the moral argument. So let's play that. Three, the moral argument. If God does not exist, then objective moral values do not exist. By objective moral values, I mean moral values which are valid and binding, whether we believe in them or not. Many theists and atheists agree that if God does not exist, then moral values are not objective in this way. Michael Roos, a noted philosopher of science, explains... The position of the modern evolutionist is that morality is a biological adaptation, no less than our hands and feet and teeth. 
considered as a rationally justifiable set of claims about an objective something, ethics is illusory. I appreciate that when somebody says, love thy neighbor as thyself, they think they are referring above and beyond themselves. Nevertheless, such reference is truly without foundation. Morality is just an aid to survival and reproduction, and any deeper meaning is illusory. Like Professor Roos, I just don't see any reason to think that in the absence of God, the morality which has emerged among these imperfectly evolved primates we call homo sapiens is objective. And here Mr. Hitchens seems to agree with me. He says moral values are just innate predispositions ingrained into us by evolution. Such predispositions, he says, are inevitable for any animal endowed with social instincts. On the atheistic view, then, an action like rape is not socially advantageous, and so in the course of human development has become taboo. But that does absolutely nothing to prove that rape is really morally wrong. On the atheistic view, there's nothing really wrong with raping someone. But the problem is that objective values do exist, and deep down we all know it. In moral experience, we apprehend a realm of objective moral goods and evils. Actions like rape, cruelty, and child abuse aren't just socially unacceptable behavior. They're moral abominations. Some things, at least, are really wrong. Okay, so this one, it's hard for me to evaluate because I do feel now that, oh, yeah, certain things really are just wrong and they just jump out at you. But on the other hand... I can remember when I was an atheist and I would not have thought that was compelling. I remember there was a period I knew something was freaky and this kind of shows the path that was going down where when I was an atheist and I was writing things for like lourockville.com or something and I said, you know, I remember I had an article where I said, no, I have no doubt that, you know, these things are good or bad and I was putting good and bad in quotation marks. And later, I looked at that article and I was like, why did I do that? And I think it was because... I was trying to like acknowledge to the reader, like, look, I understand if you push me, you know, say, what do you mean by calling something good? Like, yeah, what does that even mean, man? And okay. And, and so that's why I was putting in quotation marks, like to show that I realized like, whereas I would not have, you know, if I said something is red, I wouldn't have put quotation marks because we all know what red means. Right. So I do remember that. And so I think, so this is an area where I think William Lane Craig is correct. And it's a great point, but unfortunately, I think the atheist could, if you were in that mindset, you would just say, yeah, it really is just evolved. And so, you know, that's a shame. And I would argue that, yeah, that's not good for, that's not good for anybody. <laughs> and I don't mind putting quotation marks around the good there, that it's incorrect, but also the person who thinks that, hey, you've lost your moral foundation, your moral footing. So for example, I remember thinking, with this type of argumentation, like you could likewise say to somebody, oh, the biologists tell us that the reason, sorry if I would be a little bit gross, but this is a, the best analogy I could come up with to drive on the point. The biologists tell us that the reason fecal matter has a, an offensive odor isn't because there's anything like intrinsic about it. Like you use flies are attracted. Flies don't think it smells bad. The reason we do though is because it's actually got a lot of bacteria and whatever. And once, as we evolved in the savannah and whatever, you know, once you go somewhere and do your business, 
it's good for other people to stay away, including you, to stay away from there. That you don't want to accidentally, you know, get that all on you and you certainly don't want to introduce it back into your system. And so that, you know, we evolved such that it has a pungent odor and our noses evolved such that we could detect it. It was sort of like a chicken and egg process there where they must have evolved simultaneously. So that explains why to us now, and obviously too, like a corpse, like that's, I've never been around a human corpse, but I've you know been around animals that squirrels got into our chimney once and or yeah, and fell down and we didn't know for a while. And I opened, woof, that was a serious smell. And you would, you're not going to not notice that. Okay. You're not going to accidentally have a rotting animal carcass in your fireplace and not know about it. And that makes evolutionary sense. Why would that happen? Okay. So imagine now if to challenge that story, somebody's just said, oh, so according to these guys, it's not that like a rotting squirrel actually smells bad in, you know, objectively. It's just the way our noses and, you know, there's certain electrical signals and blah, 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 and chemicals in our head gets moved around and it's just this evolutionary response. And if we, come on, that's crazy. We all know dead squirrels, rotting squirrels smell awful, period. Objectively, they do. Like that would be kind of goofy. I would think if somebody argued like that like appealing to our just common sense intuition. Like, come on, who's with me? We're saying, yeah, but the whole point is the claim is that our bodies are evolved that way. So yeah, it seems natural to us and objective, but that's how it would feel if their story were correct. And so likewise, if Hitchens or somebody is saying, well, yeah, and, you know, it's not, and cosmically there's something immoral, you know, what does that even mean about rape or theft or murder? But, in order for our societies to function, that has to be the prevailing norm. And so it makes sense that over time, civilization where people for whatever reason had it, just like taboos against incest. You know, if it just, oh, it's icky. I'm, you know, I wouldn't want to be married to my first cousin. Ugh. Certainly not my sister. Ugh. That Where does that come from? Well, you could actually give a biological argument for that. Okay. So, you know, with diseases that have recessive genes and that kind of stuff. Or, you know, to be against cannibalism. They're just, oh, that's disgusting. That societies that for whatever reason just had a mutation that made the people feel that way, they would tend to outproduce societies where they didn't have that natural revulsion. And hence, over time, the stock of humans would eventually just all have that trait. And you could tell an argument like that. So, again, to me... Doesn't seem like a great counter argument just to say, oh, come on, we all just feel it in our bones that that stuff is wrong. So, yes, I do feel it in my bones that that's wrong, those things. But again, I couldn't, you know, if some atheist wants to say this is exactly what it would feel like if their biological story were true, I can understand why they would cling to that. So, I don't know that this is a particularly great argument for the existence of God, even though I do think it's true. I suppose you could at the very least use it sort of like to show the contradictions in your opponent's views because what I have noticed in practice, not so much in the debate over the existence of God per se, but it does seem like the people who are the biggest proponents of cultural and moral relativism who will say things like, 
oh yeah, if the ancient Aztecs sacrificed children in mass murder rituals, who are we to judge? You know, they got their culture and their beliefs and, you know, who are we? And okay. And it seems like those people are the ones that condemn white European conquistadors more than anybody else. Like they're quite sure that Christopher Columbus is burning in hell, even if they don't believe in hell. <laughs> it exists just for him because he was objectively an awful evil man. You do notice those things. And so at the very least, I could see if William Lane Craig wanted to deploy the argument on a certain type of atheist to say, wow, it sure seems like you objectively believe that racism is bad and that slavery is wrong. So what, you know, what's the basis for that belief? So I, I, I get it, how it could be used in certain contexts. Okay, now let's move on to his fourth reason that Jesus rose from the dead. Number four, the resurrection of Jesus. The historical person, Jesus of Nazareth, was a remarkable individual. Historians have reached something of a consensus that the historical Jesus came on the scene with an unprecedented sense of divine authority, the authority to stand and speak in God's place. He claimed that in himself the kingdom of God had come. And as visible demonstrations of this fact, he carried out a ministry of miracle working and exorcisms. But the supreme confirmation of his claim was his resurrection from the dead. If Jesus did rise from the dead, then it would seem that we have a divine miracle on our hands and thus evidence for the existence of God. Now, most people probably think that the resurrection of Jesus is something you just believe in by faith or not. But there are actually three established facts recognized by the majority of New Testament historians today, which I believe are best explained by the resurrection of Jesus. Fact number one, on the Sunday after his crucifixion, Jesus' tomb was discovered empty by a group of his women followers. According to Jakob Kramer, an Austrian specialist, by far most scholars hold firmly to the reliability of the biblical statements about the empty tomb. Fact number two, on separate occasions, different individuals and groups experienced appearances of Jesus alive after his death. According to the prominent New Testament critic Gerhard Ludemann, it may be taken as historically certain that the disciples had experiences after Jesus' death in which Jesus appeared to them as the risen Christ. These appearances were witnessed not only by believers, but also by unbelievers, skeptics, and even enemies. Fact number three, the original disciples suddenly came to believe in the resurrection of Jesus, despite having every predisposition to the contrary. Jews had no belief in a dying, much less rising, Messiah. And Jewish beliefs about the afterlife prohibited anyone's rising from the dead before the resurrection at the end of the world. Nevertheless, the original disciples came to believe so strongly that God had raised Jesus from the dead that they were willing to die for the truth of that belief. Okay, so this one, my reaction is going to be a bit nuanced. So on the one hand, this is the part where when I was listening to this for the first time, I thought like, oh, come on. Somebody who's an atheist, there's no way in whatever, 35 or no, I don't know how long this, I'm looking at the, the timestamp here, but obviously there was a lot of preamble before William Lane Craig. I don't remember how much time they had to go, maybe 20 minutes. There's no way if this is just one 
point among five that you're making that you're going to convince somebody that, oh yes, Jesus came back from the dead. Like that's, there's no way that's going to happen. And the thing is, even if you did, if you were an atheist already or originally, and then somebody really convinced you that Jesus rose from the dead, that wouldn't make you a theist, right? There would be other quote, logical, rational explanations for that. All right. So now you say, well, Bob, where's the nuance here? But the nuance is coming in that I'm going to tell you if you're an atheist and you think like, for all we know, Jesus didn't even really exist or something. No, that's indefensible. There's lots of evidence that Jesus existed. And I think, yeah, you can challenge that. But by the same token, how do you know that Plato existed? And you probably don't walk around really demanding people give you solid evidence for that. You probably just kind of take it for granted that, yeah, there's some evidence. And, you know, I think it's reasonable to assume, blah, blah, blah. Okay. So there is historical evidence that someone named Jesus existed. And then when you push it, I actually think it would be a puzzle to explain why Christianity developed the way it did if Jesus didn't come back from the dead. I grant you, it's a bold, extraordinary hypothesis, and it requires extraordinary evidence. I get that. But I'm saying it's not like, oh, I don't believe that some guy Jesus walked around and fed a crowd of 5,000 with some loaves and fishes, just like I don't believe Paul Bunyan could chop down a thousand trees in an hour with just his bare hands or whatever. whatever. I guess he had an axe. But you, you get the idea, or that he had a dog that doesn't Paul Bunyan have like some huge blue dog or something? Maybe I'm getting my myths mixed up, but. You get the idea that, yeah, there's lots of tall tales and why, why, but there's not a whole religion founded on Paul Bunyan. And also you might say, oh, well, there's religions founded on other people too. Yes. But the thing with Christianity is like, if you think, okay, yeah, there was a guy, Jesus, he went around, gave some cool talks, maybe through psychosomatic means, some people that Maybe they had skin elements and he healed, you know, obviously he wasn't raising people from the dead because that's impossible, but maybe he really did quote heal some people because, you know, the power of mind over matter, that kind of stuff. So maybe he did. And then legends arose about him. And so then the stories got exaggerated and it went from, yeah, he actually really did heal some people who had tummy aches and stuff and anxiety and whatnot. And maybe somebody even had what we would call epilepsy and, he gave them such reassurance that something happened to him chemically and blah, blah, blah. And then the stories just multiplied and they just got better over time is what he did. And then the ultimate one, yeah, the, the Romans came and they crucified him. And then his followers were like, well, there, there goes our story. And so then at night, maybe they snuck in and, and took the body and hid it somewhere. And then Walker said, hey, Jesus came back and we saw him. Okay, you know, so that might be plausible, except what's weird is, again, a lot of them were, tortured and killed for saying that. So it's a bit weird that you would go allow yourself to be tortured and killed for something that you knew was a lie. So the issue is not, would somebody be willing to die for a cause? And you could say, oh, there's lots of people that, there's guys that die for Allah and Jihad and whatnot, and they blow themselves up fighting Western forces. So does that mean you're a Muslim, Bob? Or is it? And no, but again, it's the people doing that right now they genuinely believe what in what they're doing, I assume, I'm not in their head. Whereas again, what we're talking about here is people who would have known they were conning the public. And so, yeah, maybe they did and they're willing to die for their hoax. But 
that is an extra hurdle in the story. And there's also some things too that when I first heard it, I didn't think it was a big deal. Like, eh, it's a, but the more I think about it, it is kind of an important point that, for example, if they were just going to make up a story to try to convince people, they would have said that it was the men who first saw Jesus. But that's not what they report. The Bible accounts report that it was the women who first saw him. And so in that culture, in that time, the testimony of women wasn't like a woman couldn't go to court and testify. That wasn't, that didn't have any weight. And so one of the arguments is to say, if this were just going to be a hoax from his followers to try to keep this good thing going after, you know, their leader got killed and stayed dead because people stayed dead, why would they have made up the story that way? That just seemed kind of silly. Okay. So anyway, there's things like that, that make it not seem plausible that what happened was his followers hid the body and then went around and made up a story. Okay. So there's things like that. Again, just because I'm poking holes in some of these alternate theories, I get why if you don't already believe this at the outset, you would say, okay, fine, but I'm not going to say, oh, so therefore probably what happened is he rose from the dead after being in the tomb for what? Like one and a half days. You guys call it three, but it's more like one and a half, right? Okay. So I get that, but I'm just pointing out if you just glibly think there's nothing to this anymore than there's nothing to the stories of Paul Bunyan I'm saying it's more complicated than that. And my trump card on all this is I referred earlier that in my atheistic days, I read H.L. Mencken's Treatise on the Gods. I haven't looked at it in a while, but my recollection is, because the reason this stands out to me is I was very surprised at the time, is that I hope I'm not misrepresenting his view, but Mencken, so he started out when he was trying to explain how was it that some humans were considered to be more in tune with the supernatural than others? And he thought, well, you know, maybe the deal was way back in the day, like the tides would be coming in and people would be worried about the bad storm or something. And maybe some guy, you know, got up and waved his stick around and said some gibberish. And maybe he just got lucky. And maybe the storm, quote, miraculously dissipated when he did that, not from our vantage point, because the guy was magic or had priestly powers, but just because he got lucky and there was some, you know, rational explanation for why the storm broke very quickly. But then the people saw that and they're like, oh, wow, he did that. And then they thought he was the shaman or whatever. So maybe those sorts of things happened occasionally to give a certain kickstart to this idea of religion. And you can understand sociologically why in the early days before science and stuff, humans would need something to cling to, to help make sense of the world. Like they feel like they have some agency over it. Okay, fine. And so then when it comes to Christianity, Mengen said a similar thing. And his, again, I hope I'm not misrepresenting him, but I think his point was that his, when he looked at all the evidence and, you know, and the Christianity starting as this like obscure sect among the Jews in occupied region of the Roman occupation. And then all of a sudden just kept getting bigger and bigger, even when the emperors were trying to put it down and pretty severely, and it just kept growing and growing. And finally the emperor converted and then Christianity took over the world. Mencken's theory was to say, yeah, I think there was this guy, Jesus. He obviously wasn't supernatural because I don't believe in supernatural stuff. 
And he's going around. He was real popular. The Romans killed him. Sorry, and he predicted that he would be killed and come back from the dead. The Romans did kill him. And then he really did just come back from the dead. Like just it was a freak thing. So you can imagine since that happened, why everyone took him seriously. And then that became, you know, a dominant religion on planet Earth. Right? I think that's Mencken's theory. And you can see how that kind of ties in with his earlier thing about how did some people become the shamans and, you know, how did that tradition start? Oh, some guy just got lucky. Freak thing. And so that's, I think that's what he was saying. So what I like about it is he was being intellectually honest. He said, no, there's just too much stuff to have to explain. You can't just say it's all a myth. That he thought, no, something, quote, incredible must have happened to really put the spotlight on this guy. And so he thought, yeah, I mean, what if he just came back from the dead? And let me just mention, if you say, oh, well, people don't do that. Yes, they do. They do all the time. If you're flipping through the channels on your TV and there's some documentary about people who were dead and came back when visions of the afterlife and it's thing, I mean, there's plenty of, you know, there's whole books on people like that. Stuff where they were in, you know, in medical, it's not just they were out in the woods and brother Ned comes in and says, well, yep, she was dead all right. And then I did CPR and she came back and told me about the angel. That No, that's not what I'm talking about. I'm saying people that were in a modern hospital with equipment hooked up to them, they're gone. It, like it's their heart, done. there's no brain activity. And then when they bring them back, the people will report like, oh yeah, I felt like I left my body and I was like hovering above the operating room, looking down at you guys. And this doctor did this. And then I heard the, this nurse say this and they report things and the doctors are mystified because it's like, you know, they can go check the trend. I don't know if they have transcripts or whatever, but or they just remember and they'll say, yeah, we did do those things, but there's no way you possibly could know that because you were dead. Like your brain was not, doing anything. There was no electrical current in your brain. So how can you be saying that we then did this to you? And then we were, you know, and then this reporting our conversations and it's, even if you were medically trained, we said certain things that you wouldn't have known we would have said. So there's cases like that, that are documented for researchers who are not religious. And there are very similar stories, you know, people reporting the afterlife and you could say, oh, the reason their stories are all similar is because they all hurt each other and then tailored it. Okay. But it just does seem like after a while, you're just ignoring certain evidence that's staring you in the face. Okay. In any event, my point with that was to say, there are people who are dead and come back to life all the time. And you believe that if there's a guy in a white lab coat telling you what happened, or you know, somebody falls through the ice and they're dead for whatever, 45 minutes, and then they get bring them back. So that kind of stuff. So when you just glibly say, oh, no, when people die, they stay dead, you don't actually believe that. So at least be more precise in what you're saying because people come back from the dead all the time. And yeah, I mean, it's rare. <laughs> but when I say all the time, I mean, it's not like it's happened three times documented in human history. It's happened often. And there's plenty of well-documented cases of that time, sort of thing happening. So you could say, okay, but that doesn't mean some guy... 2,000 years ago, hanging out with a bunch of shepherds. Da, 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 da. Yeah, I get it. But I'm just saying, stop saying people don't come back from the dead because they do. And so there could have been a freak thing and all. I mean, you take it for what you will, but H.L. Mencken thought the most plausible explanation for all of the evidence was that there was some guy, Jesus, that was a teacher among the Jews at a certain period of time, 2,000 years ago. He said he was going to be killed and come back 
he was put to death or maybe he wasn't really dead or whatever. I don't know. I don't remember exactly what Mencken's theory was. Maybe Mencken thinks, yeah, he was still alive. And they put him in the tomb and Jesus recovered and then really put us back into it and pushed that rock out of the way. I don't know. But Mencken thought, yeah, there was some guy that everybody thought was dead and then was walking around on Sunday talking to people. And then Mencken said, yep, that would explain what happened. All right. Okay. And now the last element of William Lane Craig's opening statement here is the properly basic belief in God. Finally, number five, the immediate experience of God. This isn't really an argument for God's existence. Rather, it's the claim that you can know that God exists wholly apart from arguments, simply by immediately experiencing him. Philosophers call beliefs like this properly basic beliefs. They aren't based on other beliefs. Rather, they're part of the foundation of a person's system of beliefs. Other properly basic beliefs include the belief in the reality of the external world, uh, the belief in the existence of the past and the presence of other minds like your own. When you think about it, none of these beliefs can be proved. But although these sorts of beliefs are basic for us, that doesn't mean they're arbitrary. Rather, they're grounded in the sense that they're formed in the context of certain experiences. In the experiential context of seeing and hearing and feeling things, I naturally form the belief in a world of physical objects. And thus, my beliefs are not arbitrary, but appropriately grounded in experience. They're not merely basic, but properly basic. In the same way, belief in God is, for those who know him, a properly basic belief grounded in our experience of God. Okay, so I understand why William Lane Craig felt he had to like end on this note. I get it, that he believes in God. He thinks it's very important. You know, the most important thing ever is for people to come to know Jesus and that he died for them and loves them and that he's their savior. And if they just put their faith in him, they get eternal salvation, can live in paradise, so forth. You know, I get it. <laughs> so that he doesn't want to just reduce all this to like a, an argument, like we're wondering, gee, is the universe expanding or contracting or something like this? this is just some... So a scientific debate or something. So I understand why he's ending on it. But again, that's not going to, that obviously is going to bounce off of an atheist. All right. So that is something that, you know, he's basically talking to the people who already believe and to just tell them, hey, there's more to this than simply your rationality, like you just knowing God and experiencing him and such that, you know, that's important. And I get it. But again, I suppose, if anything, I think maybe he should have opened with that in terms of if he wanted to make this thing like building up to his, some of his stronger points, perhaps, like in terms of the rhetorical effect that if what he wanted was to do sort of like a build a build up, then bam, and thus I rest my case and have the atheist be reeling like, wow, like, yeah, I still don't believe, but geez, how am I going to, how am I going to argue against this guy? I'm saying if I were the atheist on the other side of this at this point, I would be like, oh, okay. He ran out of gas. I just got to deal with the fine-tuning objection and I got this guy is what I would have been thinking back when I was an atheist. Okay. So that's kind of my take with William Lake Craig's opening. Let me circle back. It may just be that in me sampling and me jotting down notes, I missed it. I think a strong argument for the existence of God and a lot of these debates now are running together because I 
after this one, I went on and watched a different one, too, some other ones too, and jotted notes down. So some of these are, are run together in my mind. But it's an argument C.S. Lewis made, for example. And, and maybe William Lake Craig circles back and makes this point later in this very same debate. I can't remember right now off the top of my head, but I didn't hear him make it here in these opening remarks. But it has to do, it's, it's sort of tweaking the, his moral argument. It goes something like, so to say, yes, your moral intuitions or whatever, if, if you think they just come from evolution, then you kind of have to abandon belief in an objective morality. And I think some people might be willing to swallow that pill. But I think you could also make the argument, and, and many Christians do, including C.S. Lewis, is to say, you guys are putting all your faith in reason and rationality and empiricism, and but according to you, our minds and our capacity to reason and all that stuff is itself just the product of evolution. And so even though it feels like to you that certain logical inferences are airtight and everything, and that, you know, oh no, we're over here in this realm of inquiry. We're being very scientific and rational. How do you know that? How do you have any faith in that process? And you can't just take, you know, oh, because we've looked this up and down and it sure seems like that's uh, because again, you're relying on a nervous system that was just the product of evolution. And so why would you suppose that that thing is giving you airtight, reliable feedback and you're kind of get caught in a, in a circular argument? You know what I mean? Like ultimately you can't prove it. Because if someone's questioning, well, wh why should we trust the results of logic and argumentation? You can't argue for why without getting out, you know what I mean? Whereas if you believed in a God and a rational God and this is why the universe makes sense, then there's that element too. And it also ties into, it sort of goes along with the fine tuning. It's not just why is the charge on the electron what it is? Because if it were whatever, 2% one way or the other, it wouldn't work, that kind of thing. But even beyond that, it's sort of like, why is the universe orderly? Okay. Or to me, another example of evidence for God would be Euler's identity, if you know that. And so it's E raised to the power of I pi equals negative one. Or it's sometimes written as E raised to the power I pi plus one equals zero. And Gene Callahan one time on his blog just said proof for the existence of God. And he had that written out. And of course the atheists were just like, oh, okay, Callahan, you moron. But I actually got what he was saying. And I thought that was pretty profound, right? Because it's, it's not worth getting into. And plus I would have to do some more study of it before to, to speak intelligently on it. But the idea is it's linking things from different areas of math and there was no reason intuitively anybody would have thought that thing would be true until Euler proved it. It's sort of amazing. And there, you know, and there's quotes from atheists like, you know, Stephen Hawking and, or sorry, um, Richard Feynman, I meant to say, and some others just talking about that equation, like, like, wow, that thing is the jewel of mathematics or something. I think is some of the phrasing they use. Like, that's really impressive. Like, why should that even be true? That's amazing. And I guess so things like that, where there's a certain elegance in mathematics itself. And I get it. If you're an atheist, you say, well, okay, that doesn't mean your sky daddy exists. Okay, fine. But again, there's, it just seems like there's a lot of complexity and yet inner beauty and elegance to this universe that we live in that it didn't need to be like this. And yet it is. Okay. And so in terms of when you say like, well, what evidence is there that there's a God? 
I'm going to say there's evidence all over the place and you just don't want to look at it. You don't want to consider it because you're sort of incapable of considering it almost by definition at the outset. Okay. So with that, I will wrap up and then next time, maybe, well, maybe not literally the next episode, but some point soon, I will then go through Christopher Hitchens response in this debate. See you next time. You've just experienced another episode of The Bob Murphy Show, the podcast promoting free markets, free minds, and grateful souls. For more information and to subscribe to this podcast, visit bobmurphyshow.com.